0: Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.
1: Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast. I'm your host, Frank Giles, and as always, I'm joined by Michael Rogers, the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. Michael, welcome.
2: Uh, Thank you, Frank.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. We've we've blown through 2023 here, and as we're wrapping it up, getting into the holiday season, and I know you're just getting back from a big trip overseas, so tell us a little bit about what you did over there and, and what you learned.
2: Okay, yeah. Um, just last week, I returned uh, from a trip to India. Um, myself and uh, several faculty members from UF, uh, Dr. Tripti Vashish, Dr. Mangel Dutt, and one of our citrus extension agents, uh, Lourdes Perez Cordero, uh, we went over uh, for a couple of reasons, and and the primary reason was to attend um, the Asian Citrus Congress, which took place in Nagpur. Um, but after the conference, uh, we went on and, and visited a number of sites around the country, uh, looking at citrus production in India and and how they're surviving with HLB. And um, and I think it's important for us to you know to focus on to learn more about what's happening in other parts of the world um one if you look at india that that part of asia um this is where hlb originated whether it's china india i think nobody really knows but that general region has been living with hlb for as long as they've had a citrus industry and then you look at where india stands right now globally in terms of citrus production um and this was a a figure i went and checked and double checked because i was kind of surprised but um they're ranked number three in the world if you look at metric or million metric tons of citrus produced it goes um china brazil and then india number 3 so they're a big player uh i think there was something around 14 million metric tons of citrus produced in india um in the last survey that that, that was put out and you compare that to florida or the you know, i'm sorry the united states which was number 6 on the list at somewhere around between 6 and 7 million metric tons of citrus so they're, they're doing almost double the production that, that we are. Um, now, their uses are a little bit different. You know, they're a lot of fresh fruit production versus juice, but they do have some juice production. Um, but again, it, it's worth looking at, you know, how are they surviving? How are they uh, continuing to have their citrus industry thrive and actually grow? It's grown a lot in the past several decades. And so um, there's a lot to learn from what's going on over there that we can hopefully apply to the situation here in Florida as we're learning to live with HOB.
1: It's interesting. Well, you know, just f- first talk a little bit about the conference and, you know, how to, how does a conference over there compare to a conference over here and just some of the, you know, some of the learnings from that, from that event.
2: Yeah, and it, it was a very intense conference. I'll tell you, it was only probably two days of, of presentations, followed by a third day of a, of a field tour to a, a, a citrus grower. I'll talk about. But the the conference was hosted by the Indian Society of Citriculture and um, also uh, in part by ICAR, which is the Indian Council of Agricultural Research, their Citrus uh, Central Citrus Research Institute (CCRI), and that that group is very. They're located in Nagpur, and is very similar to the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred, where we've got. A bunch of scientists all working on citrus. Uh, we have different backgrounds, different disciplines, but we all come together to work on citrus. So a very it's really kind of our sister station, if you will, over in India. However, the difference is they're're the, they're the government of India, it, more akin to the USDA. So um, uh, but they, they're doing a lot of the, the same type, they have the same structure, do a lot of the same types of things that we do uh, just happening there in India. So at the meeting um, that took place in Nagpur, they had um, there was over 300 people in attendance uh, from 16 different countries, mostly Asian countries. But there were some representatives from Europe, the Middle East and, and North and South America. So um, but again, mostly uh, Asian participants. And um, and it really gave us a good it was really beneficial for us, I think, because a lot of these folks who were presenting research at this conference, typically we don't interact with at conferences like the IRCHLB meeting that previously has happened in Florida. And more recently, like this coming spring, it'll be held again in um, Riverside, California. Uh, it, it's expensive to come to the United States, especially from you know the, the far reaches of Asia, and so a lot of these people don't normally get to come uh, over here to the United States to give presentations or some of the meetings we're at. So it was a really good opportunity to hear from people we don't normally hear from and learn what's going on uh, in Asia, these areas where you know citrus originated. And all the pest and disease issues we have here in Florida, most of them came from that region of the world as well. So um we heard a lot of presentations, uh, not just about HLB, but also other pests and disease issues have here in Florida. So um at least just getting us prepared or understand what to be on the lookout for. It was it was very interesting in that respect to hear about some of the other issues they have, but um definitely HLB was top of mind for a lot of people, um, over in Asia. And, um, and again, you know, I mentioned that, you know, this disease has been there for as long as citrus has probably been grown. And so, but they're, they're really saying that they're seeing a lot more issues with it now than they have in the past. And, you know, that, that, that kind of raises some questions. Well, why now is it just, there's more attention being paid to it. Um, but really the thing that we heard from speaker after speaker Um, whether it's, you know, Northeast India or Nepal or some of these other areas in the Middle East is that over time, there's been a lot of changes in weather patterns, and it's creating a new environment for citrus that's actually uh, playing a role in HLB disease expression. Um, They're seeing a lot of variation over there, not so much in the amount of rainfall they get, but the distribution of rainfall patterns. So there's, there's extended periods Um, where you have uh, extended periods of time with no rainfall. So you have these periods of no rainfall, then you get a lot of rain. And so it's causing issues um, in terms of uh, root health and water. You know, the trees becoming drought stressed during those periods of no rain and high heat. And then when you start to get these massive rainfalls, especially on areas in the northeast part of India and Nepal, where a lot of the citrus is grown on, on slopes or terraces or mountains, you get a lot of of runoff, rainfall runoff that washes away the soil, leads to higher soil acidification. And it's all these things, whether you're, depending on which area you're in, there's a lot of new stresses being put on the trees that are ultimately uh, causing issues that allow HLB disease to be expressed uh, more readily in the trees and, and cause decline. And so one of the big themes that we saw in this meeting was they're they're having to develop a lot of region-specific water management practices across Asia uh, to deal with HLB. And again, what they're trying to do is is reduce that stress, the water stress, whether it's drought stress or, or other issues that that's making HLB more apparent or more problematic. And um, and there was there was one example of an area I think it was in Iran where um, they have issues with HLB and other diseases and. They had shown where the, some of the high heat issues they were dealing with. They would come in and shade the trees with cloth, and they actually were, you know, minimizing the HLB symptoms. It, very similar to some of the research that's going on here in Florida with Dr. Christopher Vincent and others who were looking at shade effects on, on uh, tree health and disease severity. So it was interesting to see some correlations there. But but really, the, the story in India it varies depending on where you are uh, in the country. Uh, But definitely uh, the role that climate plays in terms of plant stress on the on the on the trees makes a big difference in HLB disease symptom expression. Um, And in addition to some of those discussions that were had, um, there was also a lot of of, uh, talk and some presentations on developing new varieties for India or other other parts of the world um, for disease resistance. Um, especially HLB and and Phytophthora is a big one there in India. Um, As I mentioned previously, you know, citrus originated in India, or at least, I'm sorry, let's just say Asia. I'm not sure where exactly. Uh, That's a debate. But um, there is a lot of genetic diversity in, in wild citrus species there in the northeast part of India. And so there was a lot of discussion about, you know, how that those genetic resources haven't been fully explored and exploited to find maybe new sources of resistance to HLB. And so there's a lot of work taking place right now to try to uh, better assess what's out there in in terms of wild germplasm and use that in ongoing projects uh, to improve citrus, whether it's developing transgenic citrus or gene edited citrus. Those are things we've heard, we've talked a lot about here in Florida that's also the talk in, in parts of Asia as well. And so, um, and I know that that's on the minds of some of our breeders as well. We've got a group going back over there later on this fall to uh, do some work, looking at some of these wild citrus uh, relatives and and species that are, that are present in, in India as well. So um, there's a, it's a really a untapped resource in a lot of ways. And so uh, there's a lot of work going on right now to figure out how we can better use that to our advantage uh, in the future. But again, that's kind of a long term, long range vision, because it takes a long time from finding that, you know, finding potential resistance genes to getting those into plants and into commercial production. So
1: absolutely. But anything that can kind of broaden that genetic diversity is a, a potentially a positive, correct?
2: Yeah, because when you look at the commercial citrus varieties that we grow uh, here in Florida and other parts of the world, uh, the genetic variation is very small. And so if, if we can find ways to introduce more genetic variation into the plants that we grow, uh, it could, you know, lead to better tolerance of disease and other pest issues that we have to deal with.
1: Right. Well you mentioned you visited farm A farm or farms. Just talk a little bit about what a, you know, a typical farm looks like over there and I'm sure there's diversity to that too in different regions and all but just curious as to what that would look like compared to a, fl- a farm in Florida.
2: Yeah, well, I think it, it's varied um, uh, like Florida is. We've got large growers and small growers. The same holds true for India. I, I'd say by and large, um, you know, India has got a lot more landmass dedicated to citrus production than we do in, in Florida. Um, but, um, you know, their tree spacing is different. They, they typically are planting lower densities, maybe 100, 110 trees per acre. So they have they, they're able to grow larger trees. Um, and, and the farms are, are a lot of times you know, only about an acre in size. They're smaller operations. But the ones that we visited in particular um, were some of the larger operations. Uh, our host set us up to meet with some of the more progressive growers. These were, in most cases, the larger growers in their areas. And so um, on the conference, on day three of the conference, we visited uh, a Citrus Grove uh, just outside of Nagpur. And they were mainly growing what's called Nagpur mandarin. And um, as it said, you know, the name suggests it's a it's a mandarin variety. Um, and those trees have a uh, we went to these groves, a very large operation. The the trees are beautiful, uh, nice, dark green. Um, but if you stick your head back in the in the canopy, you will find the HLB symptoms. Every every tree's got HLB. So it, it's present in all the trees. And the, the grove we're in was probably 15, 20 years old. Um, but again, a beautiful grove. The the mandarin has this upright tree growth where the branches tend to go up. And that causes problems with uh fruit load and branch breaking. So you'll see all the all the trees have bamboo trellises around them to keep the trees upright, even though they're probably 15, 20 foot tall trees. Um, but they are uh, having real success. This, this grower we we worked with or we got to visit. Um I don't remember what, the, off the top of my head, what the number of acres he wa- had, but it was a lot. He had his own uh, packing house and cold storage production facility, or cold storage facility, uh, and was and was doing a lot of export of of Nagpur mandarin. So the grower we visited in in Nagpur, uh, large operation, um, is doing a very good job of of managing uh, his trees. He, he talked about how important it was for tree health, uh, proper fertilization, and irrigation. And one of the really interesting things uh, about the operation, um, which was different from when I visited about 15 years ago, uh, I made a trip to India with uh, Meg Singh and Ron Berlansky back around 2008, I think it was. And um, one of the problems they 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 were dealing with that caused a lot of fruit drop and issues. It was not just HLB, but it was HLB combined with Phytophthora, and so that was really weakening the root systems, and that the trees would drop a lot of, of fruit. And, and part of it is because they were flood irrigating their groves in the past. And so they would flood irrigate. You're, you're pushing the Phytophthora propagules down the row, you know, infecting all the trees. And it, it was, you know, the, the groves didn't look as good a condition then. But in this grove in particular, and others we saw, there's been, in the past 15 years, there's been a transition to start bedding the groves. They're, they're ditching the middles, uh, bedding up those groves so they get better drainage. And then they have uh, uh, switched from flood irrigation to drip irrigation. Now, it's not the micro sprinkler irrigation we're used to, but with their, their, their soils, they may call them sandy, but they're not sand like we know. Um, there's a lot of clay content. So you can use drip, and it percolates and spreads out through the soil. So they're using drip irrigation almost daily to keep that root system wet, but not uh, too wet. And so as a result, they're seeing their, their yields increase by over 30%. Uh, just by making some changes to the architecture of the grove, you know, how they how they manage water uh, and also their fertilization as well. So uh, so their groves looked really good. Um, And, uh, you know, again, the yields there were probably uh, he quoted us somewhere around 12 metric tons per hectare. And if I did the math right on that, that comes out to about 700 boxes an acre, uh, maybe on average. Um, They do have two crops a year, which is interesting with mandarin because it it has a um, a spring bloom and a summer bloom and so the, you have a, kind of a fall harvest which was about to start and then maybe a late early spring harvest and they really prefer that that the fruit that comes off that summer bloom because it tends to have better fruit quality um, we take we tasted some of the fruit that were coming off right now or getting ready to come off that that tasted pretty good but they said that the ones later on in the, the second bloom of the year would would produce a lot better fruit so so very interesting situation there on how they're growing, you know, Nagpur mandarin and, and surviving. And again, uh, the yields and the trees look fantastic. Um, but again, it's I think a lot of it has to do with the climate, and the, and the varieties being grown and their management practices to reduce stress. But after we uh, visited the Nagpur area, and Nagpur is kind of south or not south, maybe more central uh, India, we went up to the. Punjab area of uh, India, which is kind of on the uh, north and west part of the the country uh, near the Pakistan border. And uh, we went over and visited a few growers in in the Abohar area. And um, we we got to visit a packing house and see uh, they were currently harvesting one of their crops, which is uh, daisy mandarin. And um, that that's a uh, tasted really good we, we tried some fruit tried some of they were making juice from the daisy mandarin which tasted really good as well had a nice dark color. And uh, that particular packing operation last year had exported just to Russia alone they, they had exported about 1.7 million boxes of of uh, daisy mandarin uh, from their operation and that was just one of the operations we visited one of the packing houses. But, but in that general area, in the Abohar area, it's known mainly for, for Kenno-Mandarin as the primary citrus variety being grown there. But um, Daisy-Mandarin is also an early-season mandarin variety that they're growing. Um, and they also have uh, some sweet oranges there as well. Um, that includes Valencia Red, uh, Blood Red, Early Gold, Mosambi, Vaniglia, and Jaffa. And, you know, we asked, OK, that's a lot. So which ones are really being grown the most? And and they said that most growers are going to prefer in terms of sweet oranges, either Jaffa or the blood red. And for the mandarins, it's Kino and, and Daisy are the two. So so those are the four main varieties being grown in that area, although there are some other things being grown as well. Um, and, and the growers we visited there, um, the trees were, you know, look fantastic. They were large, beautiful. Um, generally, the trees are have a lifespan of about 30 years. Um, in that area, uh, despite the fact that, you know, if you look, they all have HLB, they have HLB symptoms. Um, and, and the yields are also a lot higher there, too, on the kinomandarin in particular. Um, the, the, the trees do tend to alternate bear, like we've experienced with some mandarin varieties in Florida. Um, but on the years where they're really bearing good, um, they're getting about 22 metric tons per he- hectare of, of fruit. And that, that equates to over... 1,300 boxes an acre, so it's a really high amount. The problem is that it can be problematic because when we were there, these trees, these are large trees, and they all look like they're about, the branches are touching the ground, there's so much fruit on them, they're having to prop them up with bamboo sticks uh, just to keep the branches from breaking. And uh, so that that's one of the issues, and they had a lot of, probably smaller fruit size than they wanted off their kinos because of the such the high uh, fruit loads they had this year. And so that is one problem. But the, but also one of the things that they're they're worried about and they're trying to address this this high fruit load issue is it does cause additional stresses on the tree when you have so much fruit on the tree and so when you take what they're seeing is when you take something like HLB Phytophthora um, this high fruit load and other stresses whether it's drought stress or things like that on the trees it really has an impact on the trees and they they can collapse almost overnight and so what will happen we would walk through these really beautiful groves of Kino mandarin, and everything looks great. And then you come upon a tree that just, all the leaves are rolled up brown, dead like, like cigars. The fruit are shriveling on the tree. And the grower said, yeah, that, that tree would have gone down in just a matter of weeks. Um, it happens overnight. And it's not every tree in the grove, it's just a scattering of trees as as they have they can no longer handle the high fruit load. They're, they've lost the root system and they're not taking up the water and the trees just collapse. And so they, the growers have tried to come in and hand care for those individual trees to bring them back. And they said, yeah, we can rehabilitate the trees, but it's just not a, a long-term solution for us to do that because it's, you know, you're dealing with the same situation on that tree the following year. So, um, but it, but in large part, I think the groves looked really good. Um, and um, they also, one of the other interesting things that we learned, uh, we heard the growers, multiple growers repeat to us, is that. HLB tends to be sporadic in their groves which which is kind of an interesting statement because all the trees have HLB but they say that the issues with HLB some years are more severe than others and uh, and we talked and tried to understand a little more what they're referring to and it really came down again to weather issues Um, changes in the weather patterns um, and what they're seeing I think part of the, the the situation in India is they have such high summer temperatures. It gets up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That really helps to knock back some of the HLB pathogen out of the trees. But when they've they've been experiencing more milder temperatures in some parts and those years, they tend to see uh, uh, a lot larger psyllid populations. A lot of times they're attributing uh, the, the higher HLB incidence that year to the higher psyllid populations. Um, But also it's probably less dieback of the pathogen in the trees. So they get what they call actually epidemics of HLB, although the trees always have it. Just the expression is more severe in certain years than others, depending on those, those climatic, you know, what's happening with the weather that year, uh, if the trees are more stressed than others. So um, that was very interesting to see that happen. And, and, And also the, the thing about the psyllids, um, one of the growers had told me, said, yeah, well, you know, the psyllids will actually, uh, come in and knock off all the leaves and the fruit off the trees. And I was kind of surprised and, um, you know, I was like, well, okay, explain that to me. I'd heard it. We were there 15 years ago. Um, we've never necessarily seen something like that in Florida. And so they explained that on those years when they have the milder temperatures and the psyllid populations going into the fall really high, that the, the psyllids would build up to such high levels that they were getting twig die, die back and any fruit on those, those twigs would would fall off. And, you know, I was, I was questioning, you know, how severe that could that be? And so the grower pulls out his phone and starts showing me pictures of, of psyllid populations, which beat anything I've seen in Florida. I mean, tr- twigs, branches, and just encrusted in psyllid nymphs. And uh, then they took us out to a, a block. where probably at about 12 feet high on up all the, the branches had died back. And he says, yeah, that happened in a month's period. And what happened is they weren't able to control the psyllids. Their sprayers weren't able to get up that high. And just the direct psyllid feeding had actually called, caused dieback on the top part of the trees, probably about two to three feet down. And a lot of fruit drop just because of the psyllids. And so they do actually have to spray for psyllids. Mainly, it's just when the, when they have a certain, time, certain years when the psyllid population gets high because of the milder temperatures, then they've got to go in and, and control psyllids uh, to keep that dieback from happening, so that was that was kind of as an entomologist, that was kind of interesting because I always thought we had the highest psyllid populations anywhere in the world, but they've got plenty of silids to go around in India as well. No
1: doubt, that that'd be a a sight to behold.
2: Yeah, and I think the other thing that that's really helped them there in uh, the Bohar area is they have switched um, from flood irrigation largely to drip irrigation. Um, and one of the farms we were on, you know, the difference that's making was pretty dramatic. You could look at this one block of trees that looked beautiful. And then right next to it was another block that looked, you know, in very poor shape. And the difference was that block on the other side was still being flood irrigated. And so you had the combination of HLB and Phytophthora and other things weighing on it. But where they're doing the, the drip irrigation, they were doing things with soil amendments, fertilizers, compost, improving the root health. The uh, the trees look fantastic. So, um, really, they they focused a lot on you know, nutrient management, water management, root health. Again, just trying to alleviate the stress on the trees and keep them productive.
1: Well, it kind of confirms a lot of the things that the growers are doing here to mitigate HLB as well with that focus uh, that you mentioned.
2: Yeah, and I think it's kind of the you know when I look at what we learned, and you know, I think there's still more to learn there, but. Kind of our take home messages, you know, from that, that trip, you know, first off, you know, surprisingly, India's citrus industry is growing, despite the fact that they've uh, always had HLB and um, uh, things that are, I think, play a role. It's not just one factor. There's a number of things that really play a factor in their success. Um, variety selection being one, you know, the mandarins, they've, they've found a couple of mandarins that do very well. Um, they've been able to keep some of their sweet oranges going with good care as well. Um uh, the environmental conditions play a huge role. And you know, we're seeing that play out there in terms of areas where they're starting to see more severe HLB issues, both in India. Nepal is another area where we heard people during the Congress talk about the changes in weather patterns, how it's affecting HLB expression. And and also think, keep in mind that you know, the soil status there in, in India. Um, they've got soils that are probably better for growing citrus than we do on our, especially on the ridge of the sand. Um, so they, they're able to, uh, now they, you know, switch to drip, they do a better job of, 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 keeping the, the root system moist, uh, can retain a lot of the nutrients. Um, whereas we, we probably have to do a lot more synthetic fertilizer, uh, and, and probably need to think about increasing our daily irrigation a little bit as well, uh, to keep, keep the root system healthy. Um, and again, you know, nutrition irrigation is, is key for what they're doing, um, over there, but, Despite all that, you know, their, their trees over in India, probably a 30-year lifespan. Um, but again, they, they will quickly decline, you know, due to those multiple stresses that are present uh, at a certain point. So, um, so for Florida, I think what it means for us is, you know, we look at HLB here. I think growers have a lot of experience um, seeing what works and what doesn't in terms of rejuvenating trees with, with nutrient management programs, with irrigation. Um, and there's a lot of things that we can do. But I think the real, the real key here, it's all about stress reduction. Um, they've been able to keep their trees going by, by minimizing stresses. And I think that's, that's something that we will continue to be looking at here, uh, you know, to keep our industry going in the short term till we have, you know, more resistant varieties developed in the future.
1: Good message. And, and uh, with that, I think, unless you have anything else, Michael, we'll, we'll wrap it up for today. And it sounds like a great trip uh, with a lot learned.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Frank.
1: We are now joined by Lucas Stolinski. He is an entomologist uh, with the University of Florida based at the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred. Lucas, welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here today.
1: Great. Well, we're here to talk a little bit about pest management in citrus. And obviously, the Asian citrus psyllid has been a primary concern for growers for the past almost 20 years now. And the philosophy of managing that pest has evolved over time. So just wanted to talk with you a little bit about that today and, and and how that evolvement and history of managing the pest has evolved over time. So let's just jump in there and just, you know, talk a little bit about the history of managing this pest and, and where we're at today with it.
0: Right. Well, yeah, so, so you know, the, the psyllid was first found on residential Mariah in in 98 and um, there was um, a span it wasn't until 2005 that the pathogen was actually confirmed Um, so you've got a window there where um, for various reasons um, since since we only had the vector and we supposedly did not have the pathogen, it it probably wasn't taken as seriously as it probably should have been. Um, And I'm not blaming anybody, it's nobody's fault. You know, there were, um, it was a period where diagnostics were being developed. um, And um, in all likelihood, the pathogen was probably there with the psyllid from 1998. So, so we've got a, a a period there that we probably missed an opportunity to really get serious from the very beginning. Um, then this disease is so insidious that it had this latent period. So even when we got the pathogen, when we finally ID'd it in two thousand five, we really didn't get started to to manage the the whole pathos system until two thousand ten. So that, that gave us kind of a 12-year, um, it gave the whole problem a 12-year head start before we kind of got serious. And in 2010, really between 2010 and 2018, we really started to manage the vector seriously um, with insecticides. Um, and in that period between 2010 and 2018, we're talking about, 12 sprays per year during that period but the but the horse was out of the barn you know the disease had spread widely so there was this you know I remember then in in 2011 going to extension meetings and people saying Lucas we're doing we're doing all we can we're spraying every month like like you're saying in these at these meetings and we're seeing the disease pop up everywhere. And that was kind of that disease presenting the symptoms after that period of having done nothing for 12 years. So, like I said, we were kind of behind the eight ball. So from 2010 and 2018, there's this period of intense spring. Um, uh, And, and, you know, in other parts of the world, uh, that spring was even more intense. In Brazil, where they practiced inoculum removal from the start, they're spraying like every week. So they're spraying every week. They're taking out infected trees. Um, that the 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 inoculum removal never gained ground in Florida, and and that's that's largely a sociological reason. You know, we we probably made, and in my opinion, perhaps we're too strong about trying to eradicate canker and 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 frankly growers were by that time fed up with being told to remove trees by the time greening came in um so that that's not no fault of theirs that you know we had these two failed uh, canker eradications that really you know um were were probably too strongly emphasized so so on the tail end of those failed eradications, greening shows up, and no wonder nobody wants to remove trees by the time greening shows up. So it's just kind of the perfect storm. So by 2018, you know the industry is in 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 such um, hard times, considering the hurricanes on top of that, that the management evolves at that point towards really not have, having the money to to spray 12 times a year. We, we had some resistance then pop up. So we're at a time now where, where spraying still matters, I think, but we could do it more effectively and economically. One of the things we learned, I think over the years, really is that this is a disease where, where the stress to trees needs to be matched. We're, we're at the point where everything's infected. Um and, and 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 those trees are, are, are never gonna be as productive as they were prior to infection, but we can we can maximize that yield by minimizing stress. And there's a lot of components that come into this. You can you you, you need to feed those trees, obviously. And I'm not a horticulturalist, but I've learned from my colleagues a lot about tree nutrition and how that could be optimized but one of the things that we found that you could do from the insect side to ma- maximize that yield is to minimize the 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 injury that the the, the insects cause and and if if you have a a, a tree that has green and you allow the psyllids to just go wild on that tree it's going to cut into your yield and and we found a level of psyllids that the trees can tolerate and that, that, that level can be measured with threshold. Um, so you can count it's on your trees. Let's say you have a block of trees. You can um, monitor 10 trees in that block with tap sampling, which everybody's familiar with. You just tap a branch and you have um, a, a clipboard in, beneath it. And if you take 10 trees and, and tap a branch on 10 trees in your block, and if you count, the highest threshold I'd recommend is one psyllid per tap. If you're counting one psyllid per tap on average from those 10 trees, it's time to spray. Because that's enough psyllids in there that they're causing enough injury to the trees that it's it's decreasing their productivity. And, and actually at that level of psyllids, at that population pressure of psyllids, it's, it's eating into your yields and it makes sense to spray. So, um... If you really want to, if you really want to maximize, you can you can decrease that um, threshold to 0.2 psyllids per tap, and that's an average, right? So some of your taps are going to be zeros, some of them are going to be ones, some of them are going to be twos, other ones are going to be zeros, and if on average they average out at 0.2 per tap, that's a that's a really conservative threshold to maximize that yield. Um, and what you'll find, so what I recommend is what I would suggest is to always spray during the dormant period, no matter what. That can be on your calendar. And that dormant period is from January to, to, to February. That's when the trees aren't growing and there's there's as little flush as possible for those sillets to lay their eggs on. Now I'm not saying there's going to be no flush because with these infected trees, we all know that they're flushing at odd times of the year. But usually during that winter time, that's when they're flushing the least. And if you if you hit those psyllids when they're not reproducing, you can really start your season off as 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 good as possible. And then you and then you got to go out there and monitor every month and, and tap those ten trees per block and see what's going on. And if there's no psyllids, then there's no point to spray. The, the that's when you can you know save money but if you're above one um psyllid per tap on average from 10 taps in your block it is time to spray and you can spray when it counts that way and you can reduce the number of sprays we found that way from a from you know every month 12 per year down to maybe four or five well-placed sprays during the year when it really counts and you can get the same yields as you would Spraying on a calendar, um, so that's that's kind of how this has evolved. Um, now, there, and you can use those things to 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 invest in other important things, like for example, OTC. And 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 the jury's still out on on Oxytet. I can tell you that I'm very optimistic myself, but I, I tend to be an optimist. We did studies with the sprayable um, OTCs for for two years, um, and we saw some effects of it. Um, but you really had to look hard for those effects, and and it was it was it was abundantly clear um, that um, that it wasn't going to be practically effective. And I actually my lab in in concert with some colleagues published a a peer-reviewed paper in the title where we said, this is not going to be effective. I mean, sometimes it's important to to publish those negative data. And I thought this was the case where it was, but we started injecting this into the trunks like others have been doing, but we we started doing research ourselves. And sometimes it's important for multiple labs to do it. And and I've been really, um, I've been really astonished how how good these results look compared to the, the sprayable i mean you can see clear results now the jury's gonna s- still out the, the our our studies are only in the first year but i mean it's nine day from the sprayables so with this kind of reduced ipm based um application of insecticides against the vector might leave a little bit of money left over for the OTC sprays, and I'm thinking this with with the immunotherapy like gibberellic acid to keep the fruit on the trees. Um, I, I'm seeing a, a system that that manages the vector, manages the symptoms, and, and and manages the 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 pathogen that that gets us over this hump before we see the tolerant trees. And, and I'm seeing that as a, as a potential for an effective system to keep that existing inventory in the ground productive. Um, and, and really, the use of thresholds to manage your pest and only spraying when when you exceed a threshold where it makes sense where the, the um, investment you're making you're going to get payback for in, in terms of yield. That's the basis of IPM. That's that that's what IPM is. It's using a threshold. Um, so so the money that you're investing um, has a return. Um, so that's where I, I see solid
1: management evolving into the future. Yep. yeah, it's very encouraging, like you say with the this more complete system now that all the parts and pieces are kind of working together uh that's that's encouraging that this could be a bridge to bring us to the next big big breakthrough so to speak you mentioned scouting you said every month should they be out there checking the groves? uh what kind of schedule would you recommend
0: i would i mean i would be there out there every month so you know i'll I'll get a phone call and 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 i'll be you know uh, a girl will tell me look i I sprayed last month you know what should i be thinking next month and i I said, well, what, what does it look like out there? Have have you looked at? Have, and they said, well, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, you, well, you, I say you got to go out and look. And and I and I'll go out sometimes, and you know, I tap with them, and I'll, I'll say, well, I'm not finding anything right now, so I I don't I don't see any reason to spray next month. But we don't know what's going to be here next month. All we have to do is go out, tap these same ten trees. And and see what what they tell you. If if the if if it's if the bug's present, then go ahead and spray. If if it, if the tap comes out all zeros like it has today, then I say hold on, hold on until you see them. The nice thing about tapping every month and seeing what's out there is that you can the 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 system is modular, if you will. You can you can adapt it to where you are in Florida. And and what your grove is doing. And since these groves are flushing at these unpredictable times with the disease, you know what's happening in Wachula and what's happening in Labelle is going to be very different. And you can you can kind of modify your approach to your specific area because it's going to be different in those two areas, what the what the groves, what the trees are doing. So so yeah, I'd go out there every month. It, And that's the thing. You don't have to scout thousands of trees. Go out there, drive through, you know, be it a 10 acre block or a 20 acre block and just drive and and just hit 10 trees at random and see what they tell you. Do three or four on the edge and then drive into the center and three
1: or four in the center and see what they what they tell you. Absolutely. So. I think the take-home messages you said scout and follow the threshold and treat only when necessary. So that's a that's a good way to wrap it up. Uh you have anything else to add? Like I said, I'm 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 a
0: eternal optimist, but the there's the OTC data are, are looking like this is this is having an effect. But um the jury's still out, but I'm I'm optimistic that, that that's gonna be um A a tool for now that 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 should um, yield us some benefit.
1: Excellent. Well, that's very encouraging to hear. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Anytime. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.